My guest today is Professor Howard Gardner, Professor of Cognition and Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is also an adjunct professor of psychology at Harvard University. He is a senior director of Harvard Project Zero. Professor Gardner has received honorary degrees from 30 colleges and universities. He has twice been selected by Foreign Policy and Prospect magazines as one of the 100 most influential public intellectuals in the world. He is the author of 29 books translated into 32 languages and has published several hundred articles. Professor Howard Gardner is with me on the phone from Cambridge. Uh, Professor Gardner, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Okay, thank you. Good to speak with you. Before we begin our discussion on the topics of uh, multiple intelligences, uh, future minds, and the characteristics and expectations of 21st century learners, please tell us about yourself, uh, about your education, and about your career. I was born uh, 71 years ago in Scranton, Pennsylvania. That's a small city in an area which was coal mining. My parents actually were German, German Jews, who... Um, grew up in um, Weimar, Germany, and uh, when Hitler rose, they knew their days there were numbered, and they were fortunate enough to get to the United States uh, actually on Crystal Night, the, the night of shattered glass. So they made it out of Germany just in time, and many of my relatives and their friends didn't make it. So that was something that um, was hanging over me during my childhood. Um, I was a good student, studious, college. I left uh, northeastern Pennsylvania and went to Harvard College in the early 1960s, and I've been there ever since, first as a college student, then as a graduate student, um, then as a researcher, and for um, you know, 30 years a professor. And my work was initially in history, then in the social sciences generally, then in psychology, uh, which is what I am by definition a psychologist, but now I would say it, it's again rather broad, social scientific with aspects of sociology, anthropology, as well as psychology. Uh, I am married to a developmental psychologist. Uh, I have four children and two grandchildren already <laughs> here and a third one on the way. And close, close family. Family lives um, pretty close geographically, but we're also very close uh, you know, as, as a family, and family is very important to me. My interests are um, significantly in my work. I'm very involved in my work, as your introduction must have conveyed, but I also like to travel and uh, am an enthusiast in the arts. Whenever I have a chance, I will go to a museum or a concert or a play, and I serve in a number of boards, including um, a museum board and a, an orchestra board. So I think those are the, the highlights, even though I'm um, in my early 70s, I am still teaching, still doing research. I've just started a big new project. And you know, as long as my health holds up, I expect to continue doing that. Staying in the same institution for such a long time, uh, first uh, as a graduate student, then as a professor and researcher, and then as a well-known scholar, uh, how does it feel? About uh, 20 years ago, I went to California for a year with two colleagues, and one, they were both from the East. One was from um, Providence, Rhode Island. The other was from Chicago, Illinois. And we spent a year there, and a few years later, um, they both moved to California. One moved to Northern California, one moved to Southern California. And I said to myself, you know, should I move? Um, you know, would I be reinvigorated, uh, get a higher salary if I were to go somewhere else. And I got the answer pretty quickly. And the answer was, um, the way I get reinvigorated is in my own mind. I think about new things. I study new things. I become interested in new things. At no time in my life could I have predicted what I would be doing five years from now. Um, so the advantage of moving for many people to kind of rejuvenate and reinvigorate, I don't feel that I need. Also, um, you know, I happen to be in a terrific part of the world. Um, Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts are quite civil 
scholarship thinking ideas are important. And to put it frankly, that's not true about most of the rest of the United States. It would be true about New York. It would be true about aspects of California, maybe Chicago. But uh, I would feel pretty uh, alienated if I were in large parts of the South and uh, far West and so on. Now, that may be a statement about me, but uh, uh, that's a kind of alienation I just as soon avoid. Uh, I was mentioning to you before we started recording that... um, you know, there are a few parts of the country, including Boston, which is very much oriented toward um, liberal politics, and those are my politics. And uh, anybody who follows the news in the United States knows that we have a very powerful right wing now, a Tea Party. Uh, they would have no use for me, and I would have no use for them. I mean, as a social scientist, I'm interested in studying them, but I just soon not have them as neighbors, and I know that they wouldn't want to have me as a neighbor. So that if that if that's a certain parochiality, I'm willing to live with it. You developed multiple intelligences theory in late 1970s. Before we discuss this theory in detail, uh, please tell us that in your view, what is intelligence and how should we define it? Well, of course, intelligence, like many other words, is a, is a contested word. Um, <laughs> indeed, I was once um, put on a panel about intelligence and I couldn't figure out why I was on this panel. And then I realized about halfway through, uh, they were talking about military and uh, political intelligence, <laughs> which has nothing to do with how <laughs> think about intelligence. Um, the invention of the IQ test about 100 years ago was a great invention. And if you want to know whether somebody is going to be good in school, and if you're only an hour, uh, there's nothing better than giving them an IQ test. Um, but IQ tests and intelligence as seen by psychologist is really about what it means to succeed in a certain kind of school, I would say, a modern secular school. But life is more than school, and there are many other capacities which are valuable for living, um, you know, what you can do in understanding other people, understanding yourself, uh, what you can do in the arts, uh, what you can do with your whole body or parts of your body, and none of that stuff is, is picked up at all in your standard intelligence test or an IQ test. And once you tell people this, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, but is that really the same thing as being smart? And my answer is, well, why call somebody who's good with words or numbers smart and somebody who's good with uh, music talented? Um, it seems to me they're just two different kinds of human skills, and if you call one a talent, you should call the others a talent, and if you call one an intelligence, you should, uh, you should call the other an intelligence. And no one's ever given me a good argument against that. So, uh, and this is over 30 years, so I think at least on a semantic level, I'm in pretty strong grounds. But anybody could wake up and say, well, there's such a thing as a financial intelligence, a sexual intelligence, a cooking intelligence, a humor intelligence. What I did in the late 70s, as you say, was to come up with a set of criteria for what counts as an intelligence. And the criteria come from a number of different disciplines, from genetics, from neuroscience, from anthropology, from um, testing. And for me, for something to be called intelligence, it has to, um, has to transcend a fairly high bar. And so originally when I wrote about intelligences, I said there were seven. Then uh, a few years later, I became convinced that there were eight intelligences. And now I talk informally about a couple of other ones. But in fact, I'm no longer in the intelligence, um, shall we say, um, crowning business. Um, what's important to me and what I would want to convey to you know, your listeners is that a single um, you know, monochromatic view of intelligence is, is, is limited and not very useful once you get out of a school setting. And we should think about people of having several different kinds of intelligences, spatial, interpersonal, musical, naturalistic, and so on. And this is, I'm very sure of, the fact that you're in good in one intelligence tells me nothing about whether you're going to be good in other intelligences. If you're very good musically, I have no idea if you're going to be good in understanding other people or understanding yourself or being able to find your way around an alien environment. And by the same token, if you're bad in music, um, I have no way of, of knowing with how you're going to be in other areas. And I think that's the power of what we call MI theory, is that even though life isn't fair and some people are you know, better across the board than others, most of us are pretty scattered. And uh, you know, if we 
we're lucky, we find vocations, or at least avocations, where we can make use of our intellectual strengths. If you're stubborn and persistent, I'm pretty stubborn and persistent, you can work on strengthening intelligences which aren't so strong, but you have to realize it's going to take more time and more effort than it is to work in intelligences where, you know, God or whoever, or the king of DNA gave you those, uh, those stronger intelligences. In a number of your presentations, uh, you have uh, used uh, a metaphor to describe a theory of multiple intelligences, and uh, that is uh, that we should not consider human brain as one big computer that is either slow or fast, either good at everything or bad at everything. Uh, we should consider human brain as a collection of computers, some performing well and some performing not very well. Yeah, that's a very good paraphrase of what I have often said and I when I give a talk I often show the brain is a single computer as opposed to the brain as a bunch of more specialized processing mechanisms um, now I came up with this theory as we said over 30 years ago we've probably learned as much about the brain in the last 30 years as we did in all earlier science so from a scientific point of view uh, the situation is much more complex than I would have believed uh, in the early 1980s. I mean, in some ways, you know, there are certain processing mechanisms which are quite, shall we say, trans-brain, transcortical. They're the same everywhere. There are also many, many aspects of the brain which are much more specific than simply language. I mean, ones that deal with phonology, ones that deal with syntax, ones that deal with semantics. Any intelligence can be parcelated into sub-intelligences, if you will. And that's very important for science. Um, but it's less important once you get out of the scientific lab, because if I were to say to you, you know, we have 637 different sub-intelligences, that's nice to know, <laughs> kind of for the Guinness Book of Records, but it's pretty useless when you're trying to be a teacher or trying to understand your kids. So the level of grain at which I write and talk of, uh, you know, no more than a dozen intelligences, I think that's about right for most communication among human beings. You divide intelligence into three primary categories. Uh, these are uh, ability to create effective products or services, a set of skills to problem solve, and the potential for finding or creating solutions for problems which involves gathering new knowledge. Now my question is, should we consider these three categories as three independent categories, or should we consider these as three levels of intelligence? <laughs> That's a good question. It's not one I've thought about um, in, any, in any detail. I guess my answer, since I can't think about it live on the phone, is I would want to see how far we could get in talking about this in terms of levels. That is, you know, a, a simpler level and a more complicated level. And my intuition is that uh, these things are more disparate rather than stacked. But if you were a student and you, would, you were to send me this, I would say, well, develop the argument and let's look at it. And uh, that's kind of my attitude. I'm, I hope it comes across. I'm, I'm pretty non-judgmental about most uh, scientific and educational questions. Um, I'm somewhat more judgmental politically, as I indicated at the beginning of the, of the conversation. Uh, I have no sympathy with most of the right-wing political attitudes in the United States, and that's one reason why uh, it's easier for me to live in a place where most people share that, uh, uh, that prejudice, if you will. Uh, staying with the multiple intelligences uh, theory, um, uh, let us look into these uh, intelligences uh, one by one. The, the intelligences which we look at in IQ tests and which we value in school are linguistic and mathematical intelligence, or what I call logical mathematical intelligence. And those intelligences are great. I mean, I hope people whom I deal with have them. And as a teacher, you know, it makes my life easier if kids are good in linguistic and in logical math and mathematical intelligence. But even those two aren't the same. Um, if, you, if you go to MIT, uh, which is just a couple of miles from where, where I'm speaking right now, that, that school at Massachusetts Institute of Technology valorizes logical mathematical intelligence much more than it does the linguistic intelligence. If you go to Harvard, the school that I teach 
English department or the classics department or the philosophy department or the history department, they're going to value linguistic intelligence more. And one of the interesting empirical findings is the smarter a person is in one of those intelligences, the less you can predict um, how good they're going to be in the other intelligences. In other words, the further you go out in the distribution, the more likely it is that somebody will be very good in one intelligence and not that good in the other one. When you get toward the middle, the differences aren't as uh, they aren't as, as profound as significant. And so I talk about other intelligences, musical intelligence, which is capacity to um, understand, make, um, discriminate music, spatial intelligence, which is the ability to you know, find your way around environments, to manipulate uh, spatial configurations in your mind, the intelligence of a uh, um, a painter or a sculptor or a navigator. Um, one of the interesting things is we live in a time now where people can have the uh, devices on their phone or in their car, your GPSs, which basically find your way around for you. And that's very convenient, but it's probably bad for developing spatial intelligence because if the machine does it all for you, you have no incentive to do it for yourself. That's one reason, going back to mathematical intelligence for a moment, why you know, people are nervous when kids do all calculations on a smart device because let's say that device disappears or there's a, <laughs> some kind of a meltdown. If you can't do the come up computations without a device, that's, that's not good. Um, a fifth intelligence is bodily kinesthetic. That's the capacity to use your whole body or parts of your body to solve problems or make things. So obviously dancers, athletes, but also surgeons, uh, craft people are people who have high bodily kinesthetic intelligence understanding other people what i call interpersonal some call social intelligence and understanding yourself which i call intrapersonal intelligence uh, uh, many people will know about uh, the work of daniel goleman and his writing about um, emotional intelligence and that's in the same territory as what i call the personal intelligences uh, some time ago, I added an eighth intelligence, the naturalist intelligence. That's the intelligence that allows us to make consequential distinctions in the world of nature between one um, cloud configuration and another, between one plant and another, one animal and another, um, one rock formation and another. And of course, in, in human evolution, that was terribly important. Uh, if you ate the wrong thing or pursued the wrong thing, you were dead. So naturalist intelligence was, was, was very important historically. Now we use it, you know, when we go shopping, decide, you know, which head of lettuce to get or which sneakers to buy. We use the same um, computing mechanisms in our mind-brain, but we, we don't necessarily use it for uh, touring the savannas of, of East Africa. We use it for going to uh, a supermarket or some, some kind of a uh, um, specialty store. I also have written and talked informally about two other intelligences, one I call existential intelligence. That's the intelligence of big questions, philosophical questions. What is love? Why do we die? What's going to happen to us? The kinds of things that uh, religion and philosophy and great art and literature wrestle with. And another one which is, which is quite intriguing, given what I do for a living, is pedagogical intelligence. And that's the intelligence which allows us, and only human, only human beings do this, to teach other members of our species and one of the things that made me take pedagogical intelligence, teaching intelligence more seriously, is there's now research done with kids as young as three years old, where you teach the child how to use some kind of an apparatus, and then you tell the child, well, I'd like you to teach it to somebody else. And the child actually teaches the operation of this thingamajig, this Rube Goldberg machine, differently if the child is teaching it to a two-year-old than if the child is teaching it to a five-year-old. Why? Because at some level, the three-year-old understands the two-year-old needs you to go much more slowly, be much more explicit, give much more practice, whereas when the three-year-old is teaching to the five-year-old, he can be more summary, he can put more, more stuff in language, doesn't have to you know, go over each um, operation in excruciating detail. And so human beings seem to have this teaching ability, and everybody knows you can have two people who are equally good violinists or equally good... Um, rugby players or equally good mathematicians and one of them can explain it very well to other people and other people can't explain it if their life depended on it and the, the former group has pedagogical or teaching intelligence 
and the latter group uh, has has limited teaching intelligence. So um, here we are in uh, 2014, um, about 35 years after I developed these ideas initially, and I added one intelligence for sure, and two kind of are in in purgatory, so to speak. So if listeners can see, I'm not in the business of multiplying intelligences facilely, and that's because in my research, I actually lay out eight criteria drawn from a number of different disciplines for what counts as an intelligence, and I don't let a candidate into that holy sanctuary unless I'm pretty convinced that it uh, it accords to those to those criteria. When you presented this theory, this was a research work in the area of psychology, and uh, this research was perhaps for psychologists. However, a lot of interest was expressed in this theory by educators. Why, in your view, educators were more interested in this theory than psychologists? Well, certainly when I de- when I developed the ideas, I had no expectation that that would be the case. So I was as surprised as any. Um, I was surprised both that psychologists were not particularly appreciative of it, because I thought it was a great theory, <laughs> like most theorists. And I was surprised that educators found it so interesting, because I was not particularly working with educators. Someone said to me just today, actually, that in my original book of 400 pages, there were only two pages which talked specifically about education. I'd have to go back to look to see that, but clearly the book was mostly psychological theory. Now, you know, 30-some years later, I can give you an explanation. Uh, the explanation is that psychologists have a pretty strong commitment to a certain definition of intelligence, a way of um, measuring it, and I ask them to take a pretty big leap, and most of them are not willing to take that leap. Um, they also are much more wedded to certain ways of assessing, particular, you know, short answer or multiple choice kinds of um, answers, what we might call paper and pencil technology, or today digital technology, whereas I don't think that's a good way to assess most of the intelligences. I mean, if I want to know if you have got inter- good interpersonal intelligence, I don't give a damn about how you answer a bunch of questions. I'm going to put you in a room with somebody else and see, you know, if you can understand them, if you can convince them of something. I'm going to put you in a room with some people who are disagreeing about things and seeing if you can resolve the conflict. I'm going to put you in a room with a group of people and see if you can lead them. Those are authentic ways of assessing interpersonal intelligences. And I don't care. I mean, autistic people can do very well on a, on a test of um, questions, but the question is when they're thrown in a room with other people, how good are they at assessing the motivations of those people? So basically, the psychologists and I were on pretty different wavelengths when it came to um, what counts as a good psychological um, message. When it comes to education, um, I think I was giving warrant and legitimacy to ideas which anybody who's been teaching for a while knows is are true, namely that kids have different strengths. You know, there are some kids who are good in everything, and there are some kids who are bad in everything, but most kids don't have a straight profile. You know, they might be very good in the arts, but not particularly good in sports. They might be very good in maths, but not particularly good in learning foreign languages, etc. And not only did I say that, which I've just said in, in two sentences, but I wrote a 400-page book with a lot of evidence drawn from many different disciplines. So I think I was giving a, a, a validation to things which teachers knew intuitively. Um, there was an interesting book that was published recently in the United States by um, a, a scholar, um, and he the, the book is called um, From the Ivory Tower to the Schoolhouse, and it's about ideas which were developed by basically researchers like me, which actually were able to make their way into education. And what he does is quite clever. He takes four ideas, including theory of multiple intelligences, which have succeeded in, uh, shall we say, infiltrating the schools, and he compares them with four other ideas, which had at least as much research warrant as the four ideas which he's studying, but which got absolutely nowhere. Uh, And just to be a bit more specific for listeners who know something about um, psychology of intelligence, uh, the author, whose name is Schneider, um, compared my theory of multiple intelligences with Robert J. Sternberg's theory of intelligence called the triarchic theory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these theories were introduced at exactly the same time. Sternberg 
I am. Indeed, he's probably the most prolific psychologist in history. He's written hundreds and hundreds of articles and published hundreds and hundreds of uh, um, books and texts and so on. Um, but his idea never really infiltrated the classroom. And so Mr. Schneider tries to explain why it is that certain ideas make it. And my idea was one that did. And I'm not going to give you my theory, my explanation, not Schneider's. But I think one, it's expressed simply. You can give the idea of multiple intelligences in just a few sentences. It comports with intuition. Or if it doesn't comport with intuition, it challenges intuition in provocative ways. Um, and I always say there, mathematicians never have any interest in MI theory until they have a child with a learning disability, in which case they become instantly converted to the notion that there's more than one kind of intelligence. So uh, if a theory is either intuitive or it has interesting clashing with intuition, that's a good thing. And then uh, here I had less to do with it. Um, there were people in education who liked my ideas and began to talk about them, write about them, sometimes proselytize them. And I would encourage them, but I never myself you know, became the chief advocate of MI. Also, I never marketized it. I never commoditized it. There are many people who have written books or have created curricula or who go uh, around and you know, sell MI kits and so on and make money on that. And I'm not talking about myself as being a, a great idealist, but that was never my interest. So, um, you know, there's no, there's no Gardner curriculum. There's no Gardner test or anything like that. I do have a, a website, which we just launched last year, it's called multipleintelligencesoasis.org, and it has a very simple goal. It has kind of a horse's mouth goal, namely, lots of other people have written and talked about this, but if you want to know how the person who created the theory thinks about it, you go to Multiple Intelligences Oasis. The image is an oasis is a you know, source of uh, uh, thirst quenching in the middle of a desert, and I think there are a lot of silly things that have been written about MI theories, so... You know, while I'm still around, I thought I would create a website where people could uh, see how I think about things. They have the so-called FAQ section where I answer the most familiar questions. Every week or two, I post a new somebody's written or a new question that somebody's raised or my own comments on on something or my own interviews. Uh, um, and so, you know, there's a kind of a constant nourishment if you're interested in keeping up with where my theory is today, but as we'll talk, I've really moved on to other things. It's not my chief occupation, and that's one advantage of not having commoditized it, because if I'd made, if I'd begun to market MI, that I would have felt a need to sort of control the market and you know, revise the tests and so on, and that's never been my, my uh, penchant, so I don't do that. This leads us to my next question, and you have briefly touched upon this a few minutes ago. Uh, like any new research, any new theory, this theory received its share of uh, criticism. Uh, one major criticism of this theory is that it is ad hoc. It views and presents concept of intelligence differently, and it uses the word intelligence where other researchers have traditionally used words like uh, ability and aptitude. Uh, what is your uh, take on this? I have no sympathy with that criticism at all. Uh, I don't think any area of uh, scholarship has a license on how to use words and how not to use words. Um, and if somebody comes up with a better way of thinking about energy in physics or about, uh, you know, in, in biology, thinking about evolution, more power to them. Um, my answer to that criticism, and there are other criticisms which I take more seriously, is tell me why we should call somebody who happens to be good with words or somebody who happens to be good with numbers smart and somebody who's good at understanding other people uh, uh, talented. I, am, I, just, I, think that's a, I think that's an incoherent position. Um, so that's one, that's one crit crit critique with which I have no sympathy. I think it's a silly critique. Are there any other examples of uh, criticism uh, of uh, this theory? Well, I think that um, it's a, it's the, it is it's, it is true that I've never created a battery of tests um, to assess these different intelligences. The closest I did was shortly after the theory came out with a number of colleagues. We 
researcher to see what sorts of things they were interested in, what sorts of things they spent time with, and especially what sorts of things they got better at. And this would serve as kind of a rough and ready assessment of their intellectual profile. But we also created about 15 different tests, and these tests tried to be as um, ecologically valid as possible. So, for example, um, one of the tests actually gave kids a common household object, and the child had to take the object apart and put it together. Another uh, test gave kids Montessori bells, which are very attractive, um, simple music instruments, and kids had to create melodies or imitate melodies on it. Um, We had a board game, which we looked at not only kids' numerical capacity, but also their interpersonal intelligence, namely we looked to see which kids cheated. Because until a certain age, cheating is a sign of sophistication because it shows you know other people don't know what you know. We also created a a, a board game, which uh, was very clever. I didn't do this, but um, you're given the, you gave the kids a whole bunch of blocks and, stick, and uh, sticks and also uh, pieces of wood with photographs on it, and you ask kids to recreate the entire classroom in miniature. So basically, the 3D classroom in something which was much more 2D. And then with the pieces of wood with photographs on it, you ask the, 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 the kids to say, well, show us who was doing what, who plays with whom, who likes with whom, and these, who likes whom. And these are all unobtrusive measures for getting at whether kids have different kinds of intelligences. And um, there are three books that were published where people can look at the Project Spectrum materials and can use them. Um, and that allows us to assess the intelligences of very young kids. But if I were to develop this battery of tests to replace the standardized intelligence test, that would have taken the rest of my life and probably 25 or $50 million, and I wasn't interested in doing that. Now, if you go to the web, in fact, people can do this while they're listening to me, and type in multiple intelligence tests, you're going to find dozens of entries, maybe thousands of entries, because many people have created tests themselves, but they're almost all verbal tests. They're verbal tests where either you just ask people to describe themselves, unless people have good intrapersonal intelligence, there's no reason to think they can describe themselves accurately, or they're kind of just short um, paper and pencil measures of not how good are you at understanding other people, but how good are you at answering questions about understanding other people. Um, and so while those tests are better than nothing, uh, they can't really um, satisfy the person who says we want to have good, ecologically valid tests. Now, once we had ecologically valid tests, you could then establish what I think is a very reasonable critique of MI theory, namely, are there any non-trivial correlations between one kind of intelligence or another? I mean, it might be that as an empirical matter, if you're good in music, you're more likely to be good in spatial intelligence than interpersonal intelligence. And that would be interesting, and we don't know whether that's true or not. I've never stated that these things are completely independent. I've always stated they're relatively independent with one another for the reasons we talked about uh, 15, 20 minutes ago. Namely, if you're good in musical, I just can't tell for sure whether you're going to be good in language or good in understanding other people, or whether you're going to be bad in those things. So I think those are reasonable kinds of criticisms. But the notion that somehow psychology gets to define what intelligence is, or since we were talking earlier about uh, diplomacy, that diplomacy gets to define intelligence, and nobody else can put their hands on it. I think that's ridiculous. I think that's ludicrous. Two important concepts that are relevant to the implementation of this theory uh, in teaching and learning environments are uh, individualization and pluralization. Uh, please talk to us about these two concepts. Sure. Those are very important because, as we talked about earlier, when I developed this theory, I wasn't developing it as an educator, and nobody was more surprised than I was that um, people first in independent schools in America, then in public schools, and eventually all over the world found these ideas very attractive educationally. So for the first 10 years, I said absolutely nothing. I just listened to what other people said. Then after 10 years, um, I saw some things which I thought were pretty ludicrous, so I wrote some articles and said this is not what I meant at all. Um, And then another thing which some colleagues did, which was quite moving, quite heartening, is they actually put together a book 
called Multiple Intelligences Around the World, where 42 scholars from 15 countries on five continents wrote about how they used MI theory at the workplace, in elementary school, in secondary school, in college and universities, um, in museums, in in art uh, uh, art halls, and that was incredible that so many people, um, many of whom I didn't know, um, had made use of MI theory in ways which were often very, uh, I thought, inspired. So to go back to your question, uh, finally after having you know, really watched this unfold for decades, for at least two decades, I began to write about what I thought for teachers. I'm not talking about museums or workplaces, but for teachers, what were the two most important uh, implications or lessons for how you teach kids, how they learn in the light of MI theory? And they're very simple. Individuation simply means knowing as much about every student as possible using whatever means you have available, including tests, but obviously observations are important as well, um, and trying to teach each child in ways in which he or she can learn and giving each child ways of showing his or her own understanding. It's very simple. There's always one group of people who've gotten individualized education, and that's the very wealthy because they can hire tutors, and a tutor can't say, well, you know, Princess Anne can't learn, give me Prince Charles, or vice versa. Their job is to... Uh, teach whoever in whatever way works works for them. Now, however, this is the first time in the history of the planet where individualized education can be given to everybody because everybody has access to devices, pads, phones, and so on, where you can deliver things uh, in a much more individual way than anybody except very wealthy people had before. So that's individualization. Pluralization is an equally simple idea, but it's one which most teachers, including me, never made as much use of as they, as they should have. And that is deciding what's really important, because you can never teach everything. So you have to decide what's really important, and then teach it in a number of different ways. So I wrote a book called The Disciplined Mind, in which I took three um, concepts. One was the theory of evolution from science. Another was um, uh, how to listen to an opera. I took a uh, the Marriage of Figaro from Mozart, and then um, from history, the Holocaust, um, and what happened there and why it happened and so on. And I simply took those three topics, evolution, Mozart, and Holocaust, and showed how you could teach important ideas using different kinds of intelligences. That's pluralization, and we can't prove this on the, this radio program, but I've never learned of anything that's important in any discipline which can only be taught in one way. So pluralization just means how ingenious is the teacher or how ingenious is the software or the hardware so you can present ideas in multiple ways. And if people were to really individualize education, really were to pluralize how they taught, I think education would be much more effective. And that's really the heart of the MI theory. I don't care whether people can list my intelligences. Uh, ultimately, uh, any list like this would change anyway. But I'm very interested and people taking, paying attention to, on the one hand, the differences among human beings, on the other hand, the different ways in which you can teach things. So that's the heart of, this, of the theory from an educational point of view. It might be quite different if you're in a workplace or in the government or you're doing child-rearing or some other uses of MI theory. Is there any research or systematic study that uh, shows the effectiveness of this theory and the effectiveness of the practices based uh, on this theory uh, in teaching and learning environments? Uh, do we have uh, data that is uh, based on experimental studies? Well, my colleague Mindy Kornhaber, who probably understands my theory better than anybody else, published a book about 10 years ago called Multiple Intelligences, where she um, studied 41 schools in America um, which had used MI theory, and she interviewed people there, and she looked at test scores, and uh, she um, observed the different kinds of approaches they used, and she described um, six takeaways based on her research of, of things that you could expect MI theory to help you with. And one of the things was working with kids with special needs, another one was um, you know, education in the arts, and th that book by Kornhaber is a good source to 
let me tell you an anecdote which uh, involves the BBC. Mm-hmm. At least ten years, at least ten years ago, maybe fifteen years ago, I got an early morning phone call from the BBC, and they said, "Dr. Gardner, the the score is in Britain, and some tests have just gone up, and teachers tell us it's because of your MI theory. The MI theory has improved um, test preference in test performance in in Britain." Mm-hmm. So I said, that's it. They said, you appear on the radio. And I said, well, I need to read what's been said, but yeah, I'll speak on the radio later in the day. So later in the day was sort of midday in the U.S. and uh, early evening in, in London or wherever the, the BBC was. I went on the program and I said, look, I'm very happy that um, uh, we are attributing the rise in test scores to MI theory. And I said, I'm very happy to take the credit, but if the scores were going to go down, I wouldn't take blame. And that's because there's such a distance between a theory like mine, which basically claims human beings have seven to ten relatively independent um, um, capacities and um, performance in any kind of of an outcome measure at a school, that to claim that that measure produced either uh, scores going up or scores going down is silly. It's preposterous. It doesn't make any sense. And in the United States now, and I think this disease has uh, infiltrated the British Isles as well. I don't know whether it's uh, made its way into Ireland. We have this idea that we should test um, different interventions in education the way we do um, medical treatments in health or uh, where it originally came from, different Mm -hmm. ways of of treating crops in the field. And... um, the analogy simply doesn't work in education because I can't say to a teacher in the control group, you can't pay any attention to individual differences at all, or you should never teach something in more than one way. That would be preposterous. So the honest answer, which you know the hard hats won't believe, but that doesn't mean they're right, is that the only way to know whether ideas are like MI are useful is to look at many different places and talk to many different people who've tried to use them and to see what works and what doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, the fact that it comes from Gardner is no reason at all to pay any attention to it. But if it seems to work, then you want to pay attention to it. And except for very, what I would call, um, kind of dumbbell ideas, uh, dumbbell, that's not the right word, very, let's say very simple ideas, like can you teach kids more effectively in a class of 15 than in a class of 25? That's the kind of thing you might be able to do a randomized control study. But the kinds of things that look at now is, is approach A to moral education more effective than approach B are silly because you can't shut off what happens at home. You can't shut off what happens on television. You can't shut off what happens in somebody's life for the past you know, until they went, ended up in school. And so what you end up doing is creating very simplistic measures which please the psychometricians but have no relationship to reality. Can education be better? Of course. But um, just using the American um, system, which I know extremely well, and comparing it with Finland, Singapore, and South Korea, which I also know well, um, having teachers that are respected and well-paid is a thousand times more important than whether you follow the IQ theory or the Gardner theory or the, or the Sternberg theory. And again, I'm, I'm speaking sense here, and I would hope that listeners, even if they have very different points of view, would, would at least take these ideas seriously, because they're based on 30 years of, of observing nonsense uh, very significantly in the British Isles and the U.S. One of the best thinkers and writers about this, Posse Salberg, who'd be known to anybody who reads the educational literature, um, is a Finn. And Finland has been enormously successful in education in the past few decades. And he describes what he calls the germ theory of education. And germ is an acronym, and I think it stands for uh, Global Education Research Methods. Mm-hmm. And it's a critique of the U.S. and, uh, let's call it, the Washington and London consensus, because it's most acute in the capitals, and the belief that everything in education can be improved through standardized measures and standardized tests. And it's just foolish. That's not the way education gets better. Moving on to another very interesting aspect of your research work. 
you suggest that in our rapidly changing world, new challenges and opportunities will emerge in near future and that it is hard to imagine these challenges and opportunities now. And you suggest that in this rapidly changing world, five minds encapsulating skills, values, attitudes and knowledge are crucial. Please tell us about the origin of the idea of five minds for the future. Is this progression an evolution of the theory of multiple intelligences or is this something different? Uh, is this uh, something new? It's something totally different. Mm -hmm. And even though I developed these ideas in an essay 10 years ago, 2004, and then published a book in 2007, um, I'm already thinking about these things because the world is changing so rapidly and I'm beginning to lecture about these things in a different way. So let me just state the minds very um, sharply, mm -hmm. very crisply, uh, because we've already been speaking a long time, and say a bit about how I think about these things differently now than I did even 10 years ago. So the first three minds are what I call um, cognitive minds. Um, they have to do with um, academics and thinking in the usual sense. The first one is the disciplined mind, which everybody is familiar with. It's, it's learning to think in major, in the, along the major disciplines, historical, mathematical, scientific, artistic. Um, it also means discipline in the sense of working steadily on stuff. Synthesizing is really a, it's a 21st century um, phenomenon. We're all inundated with material. Nobody can possibly uh, read everything you know, on the web on any topic, let alone on many topics. So how we put stuff together and make sense of it, how we synthesize it, is just so much more difficult and so much more important than ever before. The third cognitive mind, the creating mind, is able to come up with new questions, new problems, new solutions. That's never been unimportant, though in many cultures we killed people who were creative. Uh, but nowadays, almost anything that can be done algorithmically, routinely, is going to be done by uh, machines. So there's a tremendous... Um, premium on people who can think outside the box. But I, I like to joke, you can't think outside the box unless you have a box, and the box is your disciplines and your synthesizing. But then, uh, after you've got that, then you, you want to be able to create. So those are the three um, cognitive. But the other two, which is I've, what I've been spending my own time on in the past 20 years as part of what we call the good project, is having the respectful mind and the ethical mind. Respectful mind is pretty simple to describe, though it, uh, it's not simple to achieve, and that's how do we treat other people. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, are you respectful, kind, empathic, or uh, are you what we call kiss up, kick, kick down, nice to people who've got power over you, and then not giving the time of day or even being wantonly abusive to people who, over whom you have power. The ethical mind is much more complicated. It would take another program to discuss, but basically it means what are our obligations and responsibilities as workers and what are our obligations and responsibilities as citizens. And, you know, I'm an academic. Uh, many people who are listening will be lawyers or doctors or engineers, and we all have rights, and people in America in particular love to assert our rights. But what are our responsibilities? What does it mean to be a, a doctor or a lawyer or an auditor or a teacher? So, so the ethical mind is is not easy to explain, but it basically has to do with how we are as workers and how we are as citizens. And uh, especially in the United States, people have no trouble asserting their rights. That's a, a, a very prepotent response. But the ethical person says, you know, as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a citizen of, of Ireland or Germany or um, Philippines, what are my responsibilities? What's the right thing to do when things are complicated? And those two um, uses of mind, respect and ethics, obviously have a cognitive aspect, but they have, we think of them primarily in terms of how we deal with other people. And in a global world where we have so many connections to so many people, it isn't just how do you behave to your neighbor, it's how do you behave with people who you just meet once or twice or just have a transactional relationship with. And that's a problem people didn't have to deal with hundreds of years ago. But now, unless you're a hermit or you live in a tiny hamlet where you have only contact with you know, family and a few friends, you have to deal with the respectful and the ethical mind. So those were the five minds, uh, disciplined, synthesizing, 
creating respectful, ethical, which I laid out um, 10 years ago in writing. But what I've been thinking about ever since is to what extent is education different and to what extent is the world different in, because of two factors. One is philosophical and one is technological. The technological one is easier to state. We live in a digital world now. We're all connected all the time. And what it means to be an ethical person or respectful person, what it means to synthesize or be creative, is different in a connected world than in a world which wasn't connected before. And while I was certainly aware of technology when I was writing this work, even in 10 years, 10 years ago, in 10 years ago, you know, we didn't even have social media. You didn't have things like uh, Facebook and Twitter and so on. And of mm-hmm. course, now over a billion people are in Facebook, and nobody can tell me that doesn't make a huge difference. In fact, my most recent book with Katie Davis is called The App Generation, How Identity, Intimacy, and Imagination um, are Navigated by Youth in the Digital Era. So we have to think about those five minds technologically in a way which we didn't before. The other thing, which is philosophical but no less important, is how do we think about things nowadays in terms of the postmodern critique and the cultural relative critique. The postmodern critique is that things like disciplines or things like being an ethical person, those are just words, and nobody has the right to say what it means to be disciplined, what it means to be ethical. Those are just power plays. And actually, um, you know, we should stop trying to aim toward producing certain kinds of people with certain kinds of abilities, because that's just hegemonic thinking. Now, I think this is total nonsense, but one has to deal with it. Culturally, relativism is not total nonsense. It's the, it's the realization that people in different societies do things in different ways. And my feeling is as long as no harm is done, that's perfectly okay. I'm happy that people have their customs. But what happens in science or medicine or, um, for that matter, in professional ethics when things are done very different in one country than in another country, or in one culture than in another culture. As long as those cultures have no connection to another, it doesn't matter. But in a global world, we can't have a world where journalism is done one way on, on one side of a border and done an entirely different way in another side of a border, any more than we can have medicine or science or law, which is so country-specific. So what I'm saying is that even ideas that are developed 10 years ago need to be rethought all the time, which keeps people like me busy and gets me to revise books, but it makes it much more difficult to you know, develop a sustained argument because the world doesn't stay constant. This leads us to my next question. Uh, you developed theory of multiple intelligences in 1970s. Uh, you then presented the idea of five minds for the future. Recently, you have discussed in your publications and presentations characteristics and expectations of this generation of learners uh, that uses smartphones, uses apps on mobile devices, is connected almost 24-7. Now, from teaching and learning point of view, and from social and emotional learning point of view, how is this generation different? What are the main characteristics of this generation of learners? Well, I know a lot about this answer within the United States, and so I think one has to um, couch my remark in saying that I don't know whether the answer would be the same. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, um, young people are connected almost all the time. It's terribly important for them to be connected. Uh, That actually includes connected to their parents when they go, when they are in college and when they move to other parts of the country, and so it's certainly not entirely a bad thing. But this hyper-connectivity is very different than earlier generations where you might go away to school and talk to your parents once a week or write them a letter, or you might travel and you know, not even do that. So people are hyper-connected now. In the United States, um, young people are very dependent upon the apps that they have, and they often rely on those apps to tell them what to do and how to do it. So in, in this book, The App Generation, we talk about how it's much better to be app-enabled rather than app-dependent. App-enabled means you use apps when they're helpful, but you don't depend on them all the time. And um, sometimes you put, the, you put the device away and try to figure things out without just following somebody else's uh, set of steps. Um, a surprising finding from our research is that um, this generation in the United States is, is risk-averse. It's much less likely to, make chance, to take chances than earlier generations. Now, this might not be 
do just to the digital world. We can't prove that. But it's an interesting finding. And someone said to me, well, Dr. Gardner, haven't young people always been risk-averse? And I said, well, I was brought up in the 1960s, and nobody at that time accused us of being risk-averse. And um, I think this may be connected, because when you have devices, you're under the illusion that you can control everything. And if you, want, if you feel you can control everything, then you don't want to take risks on things. Um, uh, just a few, a few other um, findings from our research. Mm-hmm. When it comes to creativity, um, it's not the case that kids nowadays are more creative or less creative than in an earlier era. They're differently creative. What we found in our research, again in the United States, is that when it comes to graphic productions, to drawing, painting, and so on, kids actually are more creative. But when it comes to literary literary creations, stories, fiction, kids are less creative. And this was a very careful study, which I supervised, but I didn't do the research. We had productions from 20 years ago and from today scored by blind judges. So judges did not know whether they were done in 1990 or 2010. So this finding about the creativity, we say the medium matters. In some media, more visual, graphic media, kids are more creative. In other media, like linguistic narrative ones, they're less creative. Um, Another surprising finding, and this comes out of social media, is um, that kids feel a need to brand themselves very early, to appear to be a certain way, often much more perfect than they really feel, to look very good, to be very clever, um, to have everything going right. And not only is this uh, typically not true for the young person, so there's a hypocrisy involved there, but other young people who see that feel very inadequate because they don't feel that they can come off as smoothly, as brand-like, as icon-like, as the other people on Facebook or whatever the social media thing is. And uh, there's actually research that kids who spend a lot of time in social media are often depressed because uh, they feel they can't measure up to the standards that are being expected of them. Also, when it comes to something like bullying, kids have always been bullied, but it used to be when you went home to school, you wouldn't be bullied till the next day. But nowadays, with cyberbullying, it's 24-7, and unfortunately, most kids, especially young kids, don't have the fortitude to put the device away. <laughs> and so even at midnight, if they're being bullied, they, they feel compelled to look at it. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, dangers as well as a lot of opportunities. I mentioned some of the educational opportunities before. Personalization and individuation are much, much easier in a digital era than they were in a pre-digital era. Uh, let me just say a word about teaching. I think every teacher needs to know the media that are available. Every teacher should use the media which are helpful to them, but you should never let the existence or non-existence of the medium decide what to teach. Um, that's a value judgment, and that shouldn't come from the available software. And as when it comes to how to teach, um, obviously software can be helpful to you, but you shouldn't assume because it's, uh, it's technological, it's better than the old-fashioned lecture or the old-fashioned Socratic questioning. That's an empirical question, and I'm sure it de- the answer depends on what you're trying to teach. And in your book, uh, The App Generation, uh, you highlight uh, the inability of uh, this generation uh, to socially connect uh, with others. Well, they certainly connect, but the question is how deeply are they mm-hmm. connecting? And many people, not just uh, Katie Davis and I, are worried about whether kids can have deepening transformational relationships with others, friends, lovers, or whether relationships are more and more transactional. And you know, just two bits of data. Um, number one, um, people, pediatricians are very worried that parents are not having eye-to-eye contact with their children the way they used to. And of course, that makes it very difficult when you have to deal with it, uh, an in-person situation with someone if you don't know how to read their signals. And relatedly, nowadays, um, young people are often very luck- reluctant to have a face-to-face conversation with somebody when there's a difficult situation. So they try to do it by email or messaging, and the message may get across, but the feelings that you have and the feelings the other person has d- don't come across. And the whole notion of having had a, uh, you know, a love relationship, a romantic relationship, and just sort of sending a text and say, it's off, is very different than having to look at the person face-to-face and say, you know, I think things aren't working out and you know, maybe we should try something else. So um, a lot of people with, with, with psychiatric, psychoanalytic, uh, psychodynamic training are very worried about these things. And one of the things that I did in the book is I had a focus group of uh, 
analysts who discussed how kids were different now than they were 20 years ago. And it was quite interesting. And one of the things that I remember is uh, uh, the psychiatrist said, you know, 20 years ago, kids took sex too seriously. Nowadays, they don't take it seriously enough. And I think what he was saying is, you know, when you get to intimate relations, these are not things which uh, everybody can handle in a casual basis, in what we call a hookup kind of basis. And uh, there can be a lot of casualties for that. So you know, we shouldn't either lambaste or glorify the digital media. Like any technology, they can have positive and negative uses. And part of what older people can do, we may not be as facile because we're digital immigrants, not digital natives, but um, you know, we can talk about uh, and we can mentor better and, worse use, better and worse uses of these technologies, whereas young kids, of course, they're, 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 they're too wet behind the ears to be able to do that. In the book, you present two interesting terms, uh, app consciousness and app worldview. You have briefly touched upon the relevant concepts, and I find these concepts very interesting. Well, they, they, they both refer to the same notion, namely that life can be a series of apps. If there's no app, you don't want to do it. It's not worth taking seriously. One of the lines that I have in the book is a kid came up to me and said, Dr. Gardner, I don't know why we even need to have school when the answers to all questions are in my smart device. And I said, yeah, the answers to all questions except the important ones. If you have app consciousness and you expect everything to come out of apps, you're not going to think about what love is or you know, why we die, things like that. Um, the other thing is we have in the United States, and this may sound a little bit bizarre to a non-U.S. audience, what I call the super app notion. First, you have to go to the right grade school. Then you have to go to the right secondary school. You have to take the right advanced placement courses. You have to get the right scores on your exams. You have to go to the right college and not only have the right major, which nowadays is economics or business, but the right internship. And then you have to go to work on Wall Street or in Silicon Valley. And, and life is laid out as one um, ineluctable step after another. And not only do I think that's kind of sad, but also if you really think that's going to happen, you can't deal with what happens when it doesn't happen, when you don't get into the right college, you don't get the right internship. You get the job in Wall Street, but you hate it. Um, but because you think everything has been laid out in advance and there's super app, you're just not able to deal with uncertainty, not able to take risks and so on. Um, so, you know, as you can, as you can say, as you can see, um, you know, I have moved a lot from the psychologist who was just interested in um, parcelating out human faculties to somebody who's doing a lot more work close at hands with young people, worrying a lot more about not just their cognition, but their ethics and their morality. Maybe I should conclude by mentioning um, the two things that I've been working on most uh, rigorously and vigorously in the last years. One of them is called The Good Project, and it's an effort to determine what it means to be a good worker or a good citizen or a good person, and then to help people who would like to be in a world with good workers, good persons, and good citizens to achieve that goal. And we have a very rich website called The Good Project, which describes good work, good play, good participation, good collaboration, good education, what it means basically to be in the kind of world which I think we all would like to have, but many of us don't know how to get there. The other project, which has just begun, but it's taking all of my energies now, is called Liberal Arts and Sciences in the 21st Century. Liberal arts is an approach to education, which is a uniquely uh, United States one. I mean, obviously there are intimations and echoes of it elsewhere, but it's basically after finish secondary school, you don't have to go to vocational training. Instead, you go and you read great literature, you study philosophy, you pick up um, scientific acumen, you spend a lot of time in Socratic classes, you live on the same campus with other people, and it's a wonderful form of education, and we were talking earlier about why I've stayed at Harvard for decades, and that's because it's one of the places where liberal arts, when it's done well, is really a, it's, it's a triumph of, of the human spirit. But um, while liberal arts education and science education is admired in many places, it's in big jeopardy in the United States. It's very, very expensive, and few people can afford it. Um, many people want to be hyper-vocational, which is not liberal arts. Liberal arts is expanding your mind. It's not training for a particular vocation. And as people who read the media,
lot of pathology in American campuses, a lot of cheating, a lot of drinking, um, too much sexual rapacity. Um, fraternities and athletics have an importance which they don't deserve to have. So um, everything I've said now, you could say without doing any research, but we're doing a large empirical study of all the different constituencies in various campuses to understand how they are thinking about four-year residential education, how those different constituencies are thinking about four-year residential education, and then trying to identify projects, programs, approaches, which bring these different conceptions into closer alignment with one another. So um, if I wanted to be modest, I'd say we're just trying to understand how people think about education at the college level in the United States today. If I wanted to be more grandiose, I'd say we're trying to figure out how to fix liberal arts and sciences education. So the kind of education which I had 50 years ago, which my children were lucky enough to have 20 years ago, will still be around in the future. And maybe that would be valuable, not just for the United States, but for countries all over the world. Professor Howard Gardner, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. I, I enjoyed speaking with you, and uh, hello to all of your listeners. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye.